0: Her name is Ida, and it's been widely reported that she is the missing link, demonstrating that Darwinian evolution is true. Today, we'll look at the facts. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist, Dr. Pat Zukerman. Today, Pat will examine this topic and take us back through history for answers. And by the way, it's crucial resources like these that we offer at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's articles, books, interviews with leading scholars, and past programs available for download on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, all at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org.
1: Pat, today is part two of our program on EDA. Let's welcome our special guest. Yes, Kevin. There's been a lot of hype in the media and amongst the scientific community, amongst evolutionists, over a 47 million year old fossil of an ancient primate named EDA on display at the American Museum of History in New York City. Many tout this as being the missing link, a key discovery in the evolution of from primates to homo sapiens and here to brief us on this issue and talk some more about transitional forms is the scientist on our staff here at Probe Ministries, Dr. Ray Boland. Ray, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Pat. Ray has a PhD in microbiology from the University of Texas and has done a lot of research in this area. So, Ray, we talked about it last week, but briefly summarize for us what EDA is all about and the is it supposedly the missing link
2: well that's the way it's been presented and there's a website called the link uh, that's all about Ida, and very multi multimedia in its presentation very slick very well done There was a TV cable program done about it there's a book coming out so there's lots lots of different aspects to the promotion of it and they do title it as a missing link and the missing link idea though is, that, is the idea that EDA is a link between one form of, I'll just use the term monkeys, that did not lead to human beings and the form of monkeys that supposedly did lead to human beings. Um, and that conclusion, I, I was surprised to see, has, is being hotly contested already among many scientists. And, and so we're – what Eda's uh, status really is going to be 10 years from now, we have no idea. It, she may just uh, melt away. What is significant about this fossil is that uh, it's nearly complete. They say 95%. It, it is a beautiful fossil with imprints of skin and of hair. Uh, stomach contents are probably seem to be present, at least to, to make out uh, some aspects of it. So it's an extremely unusual find, but whether it's also going to remain famous as some kind of a missing link between one form of monkey and the line that led to humans, uh, that's still up in the air.
1: Now, what we see often in a new discovery is that it receives a lot of hype, you know, labeled as the missing link, and eventually just kind of dies off. Is, is that what you think is going to happen here with EDA? I think
2: that's exactly what will happen with EDA because you have numerous uh, – Uh, scientists involved in the human evolution story who are already saying that. Uh, And they don't think it's anything special at all. Um, It's probably just some sort of extinct lemur and not much more or less than that. Um, So this is one of those finds, I think, which in the long run could end up being damaging to, to the reputation of science because I think it has been grossly oversold. And how much the public ends up being aware of that overselling It's hard to say. The public has little to do with what gets reported in the media. And as you've said, sometimes things are hyped in a major way. But then if it doesn't prove out
0: right, well, then nobody talks about it. And it just disappears. And most people are left with the impression it stayed. Yeah, it's almost like the damage is done. Right. Even if it's false and any follow up goes by the wayside and people don't get the full story. They're just assuming what they saw very prominently. That's correct, yeah.
1: Well, Ray, you know, Ida is not the first candidate to be the proposed missing link. There have been many that have come through the years. Uh, One is the Australopithecines. It was touted as a missing link. Uh, One of the most famous in this category is Lucy, Mm -hmm. believed to be about three feet tall, uh, found in Ethiopia in 1974. She was believed to be about three million years old. And... Many scientists back then were saying, well, this may be the missing link because she appeared to be a small chimp that could stand erect. Was Lucy the missing link? What what happened here?
2: Well, it depends on which anthropologist you talk to. (laughs) If you talk to Lucy's discoverer, uh, Donald Johansson, he still strongly maintains the position that uh, something like uh, Lucy indeed was a transitional fossil between an ape-like ancestor and human beings. You talk to other anthropologists who are not part of his entourage, and they put Lucy off to the side, not that significant, not that close to any kind of transitional form. It was still too much like an ape, not enough like a human for that age, that period, that time. Uh, Whether Lucy walked upright or not is still something that some scientists still dispute. The fossil still had numerous adaptations that showed it could uh, rummage around in the trees far more successfully than it could on the ground. And it's just, you know, most of its skeleton resembled more that of, of an actual ape. So, you know, it's funny how we even get the names. Ida that we mentioned earlier is the name of, I think, the six-year-old child of one of the scientist discoverers. Uh, Lucy got her name because uh, the Beatles' "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds" was playing on the tape player in the background when she was found. So they named her Lucy.
0: Absolutely no rhyme or reason to it at all. But you mean if Barbara Ann from the Beach Boys was playing, they would be called it be could be Barbara, Barbara
1: Ann. Ann. Yeah, that, that that could be it. Um, so most likely, this uh, Australopithecines looks like maybe some form of extinct ape?
2: That's the way I categorize it, yeah. Um, and I don't think there's much about it to tell us anything different.
1: Now another one that came up was Homo habilis. Uh, tell us about that one. Is that one a transitional form?
2: Well, Homo habilis gets even more messy uh, than Lucy does. Uh, there's only a couple of fossil finds that have been put into that category. And again, some of these are skull only. There's very little of the skeleton from the neck down, what they call the postcranial skeleton. There's not much of that available of, of any Homo habilis. And so you just got some skulls to look at. And um, one that was featured on the cover of National Geographic many, many years ago uh, was called Skull 1470. And what was unusual about it is that even though its brain size capacity was fairly small, um, it was within the range of modern humans but on the small side, uh, its actual skeletal features on on the skull were were very human-like. And we used to show some slides around here that built two different reconstructions depending upon how where, where you put the actual faceplate because it was broken from the original skull. It just shows there's a lot of interpretation that takes place. And habilis is something that some paleontologists, uh, some anthropo- anthropological uh, people, they they don't even use the term anymore. So this is one of those categories that's, that's really uh, kind of mysterious. And you, some people will show you their... Uh, tree of of human evolution, and you won't even find Homo habilis as a name on there. So, it's it's really bizarre.
0: Dr. Boland, as a layman, I've been reading some of the literature, and it seems that some paleontologists distinguish Homo sapiens from Homo sapiens sapiens. Mm -hmm. Can you help us out with that distinction?
2: Yeah. uh, When you talk about the later uh, fossil finds that are distinguished as Homo sapiens, there are... What they, they can sometimes add what they call a subspecies character characterization at the end of the species name. Uh, so you get a third term uh, added on. For instance, Neanderthal uh, fossils can be described in one of two ways. They can call them either Homo neanderthalensis, saying it's a completely separate species from humans or they will use the tag Homo sapiens neanderthalensis, meaning it is a human form, but it's a subgroup of humans. You have to understand a little bit of, of the taxonomy, the science of taxonomy. What There are people that we call splitters, and everything's a different species, and there are people who are called lumpers. They lump lots of stuff together into one species. And, you know, it's it's a thing of preference uh, more than anything else. Uh, and Homo sapiens sapiens refers to the latest derivation of human beings, that's us, uh, supposedly, and probably originated in the realm of 50 to 100,000 years ago, they Now, say.
0: that's interesting. That's interesting. You know, that's that's early. Modern man being, that'd be us, and it'd be under 100,000 years, which is a finger snap in the purported you know, mm-hmm. ages that, that scientists often...
1: Absolutely. Well, the first two candidates, Australopithecine and Homo habilis, didn't seem to prove a conclusive case. What about this third one we hear a lot about, which seems to have the strongest uh, fossil record, Homo erectus, dated about 1.7 million to 400,000 years old? What about Homo erectus? Is that a stronger case for a transitional form?
2: Well, Pat, it's, it's an interesting way to put the question. My, my response would be yes and no. <laughs> um, yes, in the sense that Homo erectus are what some people, some of the different finds have names too. They have Java man and Peking man and, and those that are two that might be more, more well known uh, that are Homo erectus fossils. But the thing that's unusual about them is that for the most part, from the neck down, they're almost identical to human beings. And the only thing that differs slightly is the skull. And there it's mostly talking about the size of the brain case. And plus, they, they tend to have uh, exaggerated brow ridges that would stick out a little bit, which they would consider a, a primitive condition. But you can find human beings that have exaggerated bony brow ridges today. My so uncle. My uncle. we won't ask for his name (laughs) okay (laughs) and and so there are some i've actually read in an anthropological book that some anthropologists suggest even that homo erectus probably could uh interbreed with with us well when you throw that characterization in there that tells you they're the same species now, they may look a little different. They may have, on average, slightly smaller brain cases than we have today as far as the average is concerned, but they're well within the range of human beings. Um, many, Some of the Homo erectus uh, fossil camps show tool usage and uh, various aspects of clear human capacities, uh, design and tool-making, weapon-making um, uh, using uh, flints to to carve um, uh, the skin off of killed animals and such. So, you know, they've got a lot of human characteristics. Yeah, they're fairly what you would call primitive and that they could be what could be called termed a transitional form. But, you know, there might just be varieties of a human being and uh, some of them appear to have – persisted well into the modern period. The date you gave was about 400,000 years ago. Uh, But there have been fossils found in Australia in an area called Cow Swamp, K-O-W Swamp. And these are almost said to be – they're said to be human beings, but they resemble almost identically Homo erectus fossils. But they're human beings, why? Because they're too young. Um, But they bear strong resemblance to other Homo erectus Erectus fossils. So, you know, the fact that they would be contemporaneous with Homo sapiens is is a little bit of a problem. If they actually could interbreed together, then trying to explain then how humans separated off at all uh, becomes rather difficult. Uh, Homo erectus supposedly also started in Africa and spread throughout uh, Europe and Asia. Uh, and then Homo sapiens also originated in Africa and spread out to Europe and Asia and, and eventually the Americas. And, you know, they're following the same pattern, you know, but how did they both evolve in, in Africa at different times, but then they were contemporaneous with each other for a while? Are they just human beings or are they transitionals?
1: Who knows? <laughs> Could it be that their features may be explained by things like inbreeding and a harsh environment and, and, and diet and those issues?
2: There's got to be an element of that involved, um, you know, we we find often that in, in small groups and bands that they interbreed amongst each other, and, and that uh, will almost always lead to certain kinds of deformities being expressed, many of which are skeletal uh, deformities. Uh, could that lead to smaller brain cases? Sure. Um, could it lead to other slightly primitive features of the skull? Most likely. Uh, even diet, if you're you – know, they didn't know anything about the need for vitamin D uh, uh, in, in that time. And so it, you know, if they weren't con- consuming sufficient quantities of that because of the nature of their diet, well, they're going to form rickets, and it's going to look primitive. Um, but it means nothing about – What their ancestry is. And so uh, some of those things could all of, you know, the, the diet, the inbreeding, all those things could definitely have had an effect. And that's something that from the bones themselves, we can't really tell a lot because with most fossils, you're not really holding in your hand the actual bone. Because the way the fossil is usually formed, even for these fairly recent ones, is that the, the organism gets covered over, and as the animal and the bones decay, it leaves a cavity. And then somehow, in, in, after that, more sand, more sediment comes in and fills in the empty space. And so what you actually have is just an impression that's actually sedimentary rock. It's not a bone. So we can't always e- examine these bones for mineral content or leftovers of because it's not bone anymore. It's just rock. So we can't really find out a lot about the, a- the effects of diet or whatever because we, we really don't have access to real biological mm-hmm. material.
1: Well, let's move on to the last candidate here, which you mentioned briefly: Neanderthal man. Wow. Tell us about Neanderthal man. I think they look like the guys on the uh, Geico commercial.
0: <laughs> yeah, they do,
1: and my
2: uncle. Yeah, by the way. that's uh, that's that's the intent there. I think cavemen, but um, Neanderthals are are a little are, are quite special in the sense that their overall skeleton it, they, they describe it as being a bit more robust, which means their bones were a little bit thicker. They look to be stronger. They, their face their, their, seems to protrude just a little bit, which, which could be, you know, some sort of sign of being more primitive. They seem to inhabit mostly areas of Europe uh, and as, as well as the Middle East. That's where most of the fossils have come from. It's, it's fairly restricted. Uh, and they are some of the ones that are usually pictured with being a bit bow-legged. Uh, And that probably was just due to rickets, and I said vitamin D deficiency earlier. And the mistake that people make is to to look at them as a more primitive human being. But the reality is when we judge um, Homo erectus, for instance, as being less than human because of the size of its brain, well, Neanderthals have larger brains than we do. If we're going to make the same kind of comparison, that means they were more intelligent than we are but when we look at human beings themselves the actual size of the brain in your head is no indicator whatsoever of your intelligence it, it doesn't mean anything so why should we attach this great significance to these fossils as to the size of their brains and how that leads how that means something about their intelligence but Neanderthal is really looked upon as either a sister species to human beings. They existed at the same time as Homo sapiens, uh, supposedly in Europe. Uh, some of the cave drawings could have been Neanderthals, could have been uh, the Cro-Magnon man, which was Homo sapiens, as they they characterize it, or it's it's just a related form of human being. And that's the way I look at them. They're they're humans. Uh, some of them actually used, as I understand, some sort of ritualistic uh, practices in their burial. Uh, uh, plots and so forth. So uh, there may have even been a, a bit of a religious aspect to their their culture and their life. So I, you know, Homo Neanderthalensis to me is
1: is uh, it's just another human being. Yes, uh, there's a lot of controversy over Boulay's reconstruction yeah. of the Neanderthal man. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, Belay is a, a French anatomist, and he was given one of the first com- fairly complete uh, Neanderthal fossils, and where he placed the head at the top of the spine was incorrect, and therefore it affected how the rest of the skeleton was, because if, the, if the, he put the skull too far forward, and that meant in order to be able to stay upright, that changes how the spine curves, it changes how the legs uh, splay out and how those are, are protruded, and People have gone back and investigated what he did, and they said, well, he made clear mistakes. He made real mistakes. He had no reason to do this, that the anatomy of the bones themselves did not dictate what he did. He had an image in his mind that uh, Neanderthals had to be some sort of primitive human. So he made them look more primitive. And that's how people – portrayed Neanderthals for for decades. And I remember as a child being in the uh, Field Museum in Chicago and seeing a display of Neanderthals that is now tucked away in a corner. This is what we think they used to look like, but here's the real thing. But uh, yeah, it influenced people greatly uh, with a bad idea and an incorrect perception of who Neanderthals were. And it was simply because in his mind, he thought they should be
1: primitive. Well, Ray, you know, some people are wondering... How does, you know, the caveman and Neanderthal, how does that fit into the Genesis account? Well, um,
2: that's a good question, Pat, and, and my standard response to that, and I think it's one that makes, some, makes sense with the data, is to look at those as... The early spread of humanity after the flood. No matter what time frame you put to the flood itself, and that can be debated even among Christians, it's most likely that these cavemen and maybe even Neanderthals are offshoots of small inbred populations who were spreading out. They're the Daniel Boone types. When civilization starts building up, they don't like it. They like being out in the woods and out in nature, and and let's, let's go off on our own. And let's get away from all these people and. They therefore necessarily had to live what we would call a rather primitive lifestyle um and they just didn't have anything else available to them and so they were hunter gatherers uh during what they weren't planting anything they weren't harvesting any crops uh, they weren't keeping any domestic animals because they they got away from that they didn't like it so it's interesting that you see these not anywhere in the Middle East so much but you see them as 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 um uh, offshoots moving out from that area like in europe and and western asia eastern asia and so forth
1: now ray you know as we conclude we're still seeing these transitional forms touted in our um, uh, high school textbooks here from apes to humans uh do you think though these transitional forms will still be there and taught for years to come and if so how should we as christians uh, respond
2: well. I think as long as we have uh, people thinking fully naturalistically, those will always be there. Uh, some some form, some shape or fashion of that story, I think, will continue to be around because uh, it's far more worldview based than it is evidence based. And as Christians, you know, again, as I mentioned, I think, a little bit last week, that we just need to be a bit respectful. These are not stupid people. Let's get involved. They found something really curious and interesting. And how do we – if you just ask me, how do we explain these things? Okay, we've criticized their explanation, but how do we think about it? And there's a lot of work for us to do uh, to be able to begin putting things in their place and, and having a, uh, a story, if you will, that makes sense within our own framework um there's lots of need for for Christian scientists involved in some of these areas. So I think students uh, you know, particularly in high school need to be patient, uh, accepting, respectful, uh, maybe learning how to ask questions and not so much uh, criticizing and saying how can people believe that or, or having a response like that uh, but simply ask the question, well if this is the case, if you say homo erectus is like this because of the brain size of the brain, but we, now we know with human beings, brain size doesn't matter. Why do we assume they're, they're less intelligent? And just see what they say. You're just asking a question wanting to get a better
0: understanding, and it's a fairly innocent way to approach it. Right. One of the surveys that I saw indicates that about 64% of Americans still don't believe the evolutionary story, the Darwinian right. evolutionary story. Now, that is remarkable because of the proliferation of that view, because it is the majority view among um, scientists who tend to be naturalistic mm-hmm. scientists, you know, and so on. And so despite this intense proliferation in the textbooks and in the media and everything, people still don't tend to buy it in America. Why? I mean, and this is a this is a sticking point for yeah. the scientific community because they say well, you guys are just a bunch of dummies.
2: Oh, the American scientists are greatly embarrassed by that statistic and they get ridiculed by their
0: uh, overseas colleagues
2: uh, with that and Well, one from the University of Chicago, Jerry Coyne, who's an evolutionary biologist and been there for many years, uh, well-respected, prolific researcher and publisher uh, books, as well as scientific articles and so forth. His solution is we've tried the route of just educating people more about evolution. That doesn't work. What we need to do is go after theism and religion specifically. He said, when you look into Europe, what came first he says skepticism and atheism came and then the rejecting of you know creationism all stuff followed so we need to t- show people that religion doesn't work and it's false and it's just an evolutionary development and so he's saying forget about the science let's go after the worldview.
1: our guest has been Dr. Ray Bolin he's a PhD in microbiology and serves as the president of probe ministries and one of the things all three of us here around the table have been encouraging you is not to just ignore uh, recent finds like eda and other discoveries but to Do the research, get engaged, and be able to make an intelligent and informed kind of response that will give you a greater platform when it comes to presenting your case for Christ and the biblical account for creation. So, Ray, thanks for being with us. And you can find more articles written by Dr. Ray Bolin on this issue and many more at evidenceandanswers.org and probe.org. Ray, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Pat. Thank you so much for joining us on Evidence
0: and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and demonstrates the truth of the claims of Christ. If you agree, please support us with your prayers and gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at EvidenceAndAnswers.org. You'll educate yourself and your family, and you'll help us keep expanding. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus, EvidenceAndAnswers.org. That's EvidenceAndAnswers.org. Go there today. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time